Jeff has asked that we mark number 226, and certainly do that if you would, and we'll use that a bit later in the service this morning. What a delightful privilege we've each had already today to assemble, to offer worship by way of song and prayer, and to do so with a comfort and thought of knowing the great number of blessings that God has provided to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Certainly this is a day on which some visitors are here with us, and we're always appreciative and thankful for our visitors have come our way. In fact, we certainly expect that the service will be edifying not only to you, but to each and every one of us that are gathered together today. I might perhaps be remiss not to at least make statement on behalf of the elders for the participation of everyone yesterday. It was a very enjoyable time as we gathered together enjoying cookout, if you will, some games and communion in that kind of way at least. Certainly it was a very enjoyable set of festivities and activities and we'd like to thank each and every one who contributed by preparation and work to make that a success just as it was. Today as we come to this part of our service and give thought to a segment or portion of the Word of God, I would invite you for the next few moments to think with me about baptism and its relationship to the resurrection of our Savior. To do so, consider with me some of these introductory thoughts. For many of us, we have heard now for some time about that today is Easter Sunday. That particular day set aside each year, determined in a very unusual way in many ways. It, of course, varies from the end of March on to about the end of April, depending on which Sunday it is. But however that is determined by way of the calendar you and I consider, this marks the ending of a special season for many people around the world. Maybe you've heard about those who give attention to Lent. And maybe you've heard about those who, as the season of Lent becomes to its ending point, that there are those who make mention of a number of days and even has names to it. Today is called Easter Sunday, but yesterday was Black Saturday. Then there was Good Friday and Monday Thursday. All of those names and all of those particular designations... Harken back to the ancient days, and human tradition has given them names like that over the years. Today, as we assemble and gather on the first day of the week, as commanded by our Savior, we look forward in all ways to honor and magnify the name of God, and to, of course, lift high the banner of, the, of His Son and our Savior. One of the ways that we are able to do that is to appreciate that. The resurrection of our Savior is a foundational element in the New Testament. So significant and so foundational is it, it'll form the basis of the lesson this morning. We first of all in doing that will rehearse in our mind, taking our thoughts back to the scenes of that resurrection. But then following that to ask in what real practical daily ways are we able to feel the teaching of the New Testament as it builds upon that resurrection. To do that, let's begin in the following way. Jesus, of course, lived a marvelously perfect and grand life. He went about doing that which was good in the language of Acts 10, 38. As in fact, He healed the sick, as He taught the blessed words of eternal life to those that were round about Him. He lived a pristine, pure, sinless life that had no guile at all within it. It was a life that each one could look to as an example of that's how I'd like to be. We know we can't work the miracles that He did, but could we influence others the way that He did? Could we always speak the thing that's right the way He did? 
Could we always touch the lives of others by way of example and impact in a way that would lead them to think about God? Jesus, of course, neither was there any guile at all found in His mouth. 1 Peter 2, verses 22 and 23. For all those reasons, we appreciate that He impacted many. The common people heard Him gladly. Mark eleven thirty four. 34. Because of that, many began to be influenced by Him, and the religious establishment didn't like that even a little bit. They couldn't oppose His logic. They couldn't deter the power of His sinless life. They were unable to, in fact, remove the majesty of His mission. Because of all that, they ultimately put Him to death. The time came in Mark 15 that we see, beginning in verse number 13, that Pilate... Here was Jesus already having been brought before him. And Pilate at that point had been unable to determine any ill, any criminal activity of which he was guilty. And therefore, he could find no sentence worthy of what was being asked that he do to this man. It was on that occasion that Pilate, verses 13 to 15, simply asked the question, Why, what hath he done? The text says, And they more exceedingly cried, Crucify him. Crucify him. What has he done? Pilate couldn't find a thing. But yet they, rather than have Barabbas released, they wanted, in fact, Barabbas to be released and to crucify Jesus. We notice the scene unfolds then rather quickly. Here was this one who the previous night had been undergoing such agony. He had been tried by mockery before Annas, before Caiaphas. He had been slapped on the face by those who ought to have known better. As he had been spat upon and reviled in such humiliating way. Now we find that sure enough, Pilate washed his hands of the matter in a symbolic said in a symbolic way and said, His blood be upon you. The Jews were elated, happy that the one whom they wanted to eliminate was now in their hands. And so indeed, after Pilate had him scourged, John 19 verse 1, this scourging was, as we appreciate, a very merciless kind of beating. The victim, if I may properly call him that, the victim was tied in such a contortion, such a configuration that in fact much of his body was exposed. And then a couple of Roman soldiers proceeded to flail away at him using the most extraneous kind of whips that they had at their disposal. These whips were often constructed in such a fashion that, of course, at the ends of these rubber pieces were perhaps pieces of metal, perhaps rocks, perhaps other very hard substances such that when they, in fact, came into contact with the body, they ripped open the flesh. You can imagine being beaten time after time after time by these whips. Keep in mind that even though the Jewish numbering of the Old Testament required the number never exceed 40, the Romans had no such rule. We are not aware of how many times our Savior was whipped. We do know that He had lost so much blood and that He was in such a weakened condition that He found it difficult to carry the cross. After beating Him, off He went to Calvary, that place that was Golgotha. And we well remember at that point they stretched out his hands after having plaited the crown of thorns on him and pounded nails into his feet and into his hands. And again, might we ask, what had he done? 
criminals, two thieves were crucified there with him, but they were thieves. They had offended the nature of the legislation of the human family. They had been guilty of things that were improper. One of those thieves came to realize this man, however, has done nothing. Jesus was the sinless, perfect one. And yet, there he hanged on a cross, shedding his precious, perfect blood. As you give thought to some of the facts on that slide, we do notice he died. In John 19, verse number 30, he cried, It is finished! The marvelous mission that he had been sent to complete was now finished. The shedding of his blood would pave the way for you and me, and yea, all who would come in humble obedience to his commandments could have their sins forgiven and stand right and justified before the precious God of heaven. We notice in John 19, 34, that as the shades of evening were gathering about, that it was still the case that the two thieves were such that their death had not come to them yet. In that very excruciating kind of death on a cross, our Savior died in six hours. We notice that as that Roman soldier came, he took his spear and thrust it into the Lord's side, indicating, of course, that he was already dead. And forthwith came forth blood and water, John nineteen thirty four. With that, we notice in the closing verses of John the 19th chapter, our Savior, His body was buried. The marvelous fashion with which all that brings us about notices then that on the third day, the third day, here was one who'd been put to death, but now on that first day of the week as the women came to the tomb early in the morning, we notice that they no doubt expected to find the stone still in place, for it had been rolled in place in order to protect the nature of that place of entombment. But as they came close, the tomb was such that the stone had been rolled away, and they find the body gone. Two angelic visitors appeared there as the women were looking, interestingly and incessantly, to find the body. We notice that on one occasion, even mistaking as a gardener, and yet the case was that those angelic visitors said, He is not here. Why seek ye the living among the dead? Joyously, they ran back and shared this information with Peter and the others, and Peter and John then ran. And as they came, they indeed found it just as the women had described. There was the cloth lying in place, the stone rolled away, and the body not there the single greatest event in the history of mankind had taken place. Jesus had foretold the fact that the Son of Man would be put to death. The Son of Man, in fact, would be so mistreated, so terribly mistakenly mistreated by them, but yet the third day He'd rise again. To that point, they hadn't understood the fullness and integrity of that fact, and yet when the women came that morning and found that the body was gone... We now find that in the subsequent hours and days, the Lord appeared to so many of them, convincing them of the fact that He was the risen Son of God. He had been resurrected, resurrected to never die again. He, in fact, was shown to be the Son of God in that very way. Romans chapter 1, verse number 4. Because of all those features and facts, we now notice that there is a risen Savior. The major religions that one can appreciate around this world, be they due to Confucius, be they due to Buddha, 
be they due to any number of other individuals' question. You can go and look at the tomb, the place where these people are buried, but it is still an overwhelming fact of jubilation that the founder of the Christian religion, the tomb was empty. And praise be unto God that it was. For you see, we serve a risen Savior. And Jeff led us in a song a moment ago in which that's the central idea. He's risen. And because He's risen, He impacts us in so many ways. I would invite you to think with me about a few of the features and facts, benefits, if you will, truth revealed in the Word of God that show us about the power of that resurrection. As we've noted already, it is a fact. He was raised. That's not speculation. That's not human opinion. That's not hearsay. It's a fact. Not only does the sacred scriptures testify to it, but you and I have a bedrock faith that indicates the reality of that fact. We might, in fact, pause for just a moment and say this. There were those living at that time who would have known whether or not that was truth or not. Peter would have known it. John would have known it. Andrew and the other apostles, they would have known whether he really was raised or whether or not it was just a fake. Think about the apostle Paul. He would have known. And yet one after another, those men gave their lives for this truth. In Acts 24, 15, Paul said, The resurrection of the dead is what I preach, and it's the reason I've been called into question this day. Now, if Paul knew that was a fake, don't you think he would have indicated, well, maybe the facts of the case don't substantiate what I claim. Would he have been willing to die for what he knew was not true? There isn't anyone I know of that would die for what they knew was a lie. But these men, every one of them, died sometimes very torturous deaths because they knew the resurrection to be true. You and I live some 20 centuries past that time and we still know it's true because we have the truth of the Word of God on that point and we have their testimony. Look at some of the ways this resurrection helps to impact and teach us. Partly we shall go to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. First of all, this is often known as the resurrection chapter of the New Testament. In it, we find 58 verses that highlight, set forth, and encourage us to know what is the nature of that resurrection. Note the following things. If Christ was not raised, the first thing that we should say is, my preaching is vain, just like the apostles' preaching was vain. That is the first point of conclusion. If Jesus was not raised, there's no point to preaching. That's a strong statement, isn't it? But also note this. If Jesus was not raised, our faith is useless. Our faith is vain. Thus, our faith is based on the reality of and the concluding features of the resurrection of our Savior. But notice another, also from that same chapter. If Christ was not raised... Those apostles of the first century were liars. All that can be said about this Christian religion crumbles into nothingness if Christ was not raised. It is true as we celebrate and give thought to the resurrection of Christ. One more thing is worthy of comment. Namely, if Christ was not raised, we are still in our sins. That point Paul abundantly makes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17. If Christ wasn't raised, you and I are in our sins. 
you'll note then that in regard to that statement, isn't it overwhelming the implications of the Lord's resurrection? We celebrate it in essence as we come each Lord's day. We worship in the way that He indicates, and we do so, understanding that it's what He has commanded. Because of all those reasons, we notice that the basic glory of Christianity reaches well beyond the grave. Life in this flesh has its enjoyable things. We enjoy our loved ones. We appreciate being with them. They bring such a great note of honor to our lives. We appreciate so many aspects of God's lovely creation around us. No question about that. And we were able to enjoy much of it yesterday here in the yard out to my right. But in light of all that, may we quickly say, as we, as we would with Paul, if in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. If our faith can't take us beyond the grave, if our faith can't take us beyond the grave, quite frankly, it's futile, it's useless, it's incredibly vain, and isn't it so limited? And that was one of the points Paul made in that chapter is because Christ was risen, our faith can carry us to the glorious appreciation of what lies beyond the grave. Because we look forward to that opportunity of seeing our Master, appreciating the God of heaven, understanding the glorious beauty of the place He has prepared for those who have obeyed His commandments, Hebrews 5 verse 9. Indeed, the nature of Christianity is such that it reaches far beyond the grave, and that goodness is highlighted and seen in the fact of that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. The notion of that today perhaps tells us again, Jesus, though He lived in the flesh, and though of course He died, He was raised, resurrected by the power of God. And you and I look forward to the reality of that event as well. In fact, the very next verses in that chapter build on that point. Beginning in the 20th verse of 1 Corinthians 15, we see the resurrection presented in ways like this. Just as surely as in Adam all die by virtue of the penalty that come from the nature of the sins we commit, we notice that in Christ all can be made alive. How alive are you and I today? If you're not in Christ, my friend, you may be alive physically, but you're not alive spiritually. You're not alive in the sense that you enjoy communion and fellowship with God. Don't you want your sins forgiven? Don't you want them washed away? Because Christ was raised, they can be. As we shall see in the next element of our lesson this morning. You'll see about the middle part of that slide, the fact that it is, isn't it, in the act of baptism that we find yet another tremendous significance and way to look upon the nature of Jesus' resurrection. Let's use the next few moments to highlight those features with us. I would invite you to come with me to the third chapter of 1 Peter. In the last few verses of that chapter, the inspired apostle has these words to say. I'll begin reading in verse number 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also He went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is eight, souls were saved by water. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, 
but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto Him. The world of Noah's day had become exceedingly sinful. In the fifth verse of Genesis chapter 6, the statement is made that the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. It was such that though the number of generations since the creation wasn't all that many, nonetheless mankind had corrupted himself with the sinfulness and the means by which he conducted himself. And in the sixth chapter of Genesis, God made a decree. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth, he said. In light of that coming event, he commissioned Noah to build an ark. He told him how long, how wide, how high it was to be. He told him the number of stories and windows to put in it. He gave Noah the instructions whereby that he could be saved, he and his family, from the onslaught of the destructive waters of the flood. We notice in Genesis 6.22 that the statement is simply made, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he. He built that ark. And when the time came, we notice that he had gathered the animals as God commanded, and on the ark all of them went, and then God closed the door. And then we notice that it began to rain, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained some more. For 40 days and 40 nights, the windows of heaven had been opened and down came the rain and plus the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the waters were coming from both top and bottom. We notice that the ark lifted and those aboard were saved. Those aboard were preserved, if you will, from the terrible destructive waters that would drown them so quickly outside the ark. As you can see in the statements there at the bottom of that slide, it is this thought that Peter uses to help teach us and prompt us some of the facts and some of the truths about the issue of baptism. I would invite you to notice one of the statements made on that occasion. It says again in verse number 20, that eight souls were saved through water. That preposition is a very interesting thing. The King James translators have used the word by, by water, when in fact it was far more correct and proper to use the word through. Notice, Peter said that these eight souls were saved through water. I'd ask you to notice that that is neither the word from or the word by. It's through that highlights and helps us appreciate this. It does point directly, as Peter pointed out so appropriately, to the nature of what has emanated in the plan of salvation for us today. You see, you and I are also saved through water. We're saved through water. The saving power is not the chemical composition of water. The saving power is not the nature of the fact that it's hydrogen and oxygen combined in a definite fixed proportion by mass. That's not what saves us. However, water is required. And it's what is contacted in the attribute of that water. Consider with me these thoughts if you would. Verse 21 puts it in these words. The like figure. In other words, the manner by which, the parallel through which, water was such that no one and his family were safe through it. That is used as an antitype to teach us about our salvation today. 
the like figure whereinto baptism doth also now save us. Note these things with me. The adverb now is used in that verse. This salvation doesn't wait until the day of judgment. It's not at some future time. Peter said now. This is a salvation available now. He goes on to say this, save us. We understand what sin brings about. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. In James chapter 1 beginning in verse 13, we learn, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The absolute sentence of sin is death. There are no exceptions. Thanks be unto God that verses like this one teach us that there is a means whereby that sin can be forgiven. The debt by which it brings is thus taken away, and one is able to stand whole sinless, if you will, in the sight of our Heavenly Father. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Noah and his family were safe through the water. We notice that as that water lifted the ark by way of its flotation capability, they were saved from the ravaging flood waters beneath. In the same way, you and I, Peter says, are safe through the water of baptism. Had it not been the case that Jesus had told Nicodemus in John 3 verse 5, as He spoke about the new birth, He there said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except ye be born of water and of the Spirit, ye cannot see the kingdom of heaven, unable to enter it. All those facts and features point us to this. That third statement on that particular slide, Jesus died and was raised by the power of God. You and I must die to sin. As we repent of it, turning our mind away from it, striving no longer to be involved in it, we thus die in our mind to the practice of it, and it is in baptism, isn't it? That we find that that old man is buried, for that's how baptism is described, a burial. One buries things that are dead. One doesn't bury things that are alive. In fact, that's both inhuman and wholly improper. But yet that is what one does to bodies, to corpses, because they are dead. It is that case that that old man of sin has died and thus now needs to be buried. That thus indicates that if we haven't died to sin, we're still living in sin and therefore we are not in fellowship with God and the wages of such is death. You'll also note this with me. There is a marvelous commentary in the sixth chapter of the Roman letter in which Paul, as he wrote to the church in Rome, had words like these to say, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. The Lord was raised to life by the power of God, Romans 1 verse 4. And when you and I are baptized, we too are raised to life 
Not as those who live by virtue of habitual sin any longer, but those who live a sanctified, consecrated life of holiness in the language of 1 Peter 1.16. Isn't the parallel touching and isn't it very illuminating? No wonder it is in such a cut case that Paul often refers and highlights that fact. In Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12, to the church in Colossae, it was to them also that he said, You have been buried with Christ through faith in the operation of God, raised again to walk in concordance with Him. As all these thoughts and features are set before us this morning, isn't it amazing that this is that day on which so much of the world has chosen to celebrate the Lord's resurrection? It's a pity to look upon it only one day a year, I must confess. And yet so many in our world circle that day and highlight that day when in fact the resurrection of our Master should impact us on far more than one day a year. Isn't it true that in baptism we see that's the means whereby one is able to enjoy fellowship with God through the words of 1 Peter 3.21? And I'll use that as we come near the close of our lesson today. It is the last part of verse 21. Let me read that verse and leave out the parenthetical portion. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord's resurrection, that thing that's celebrated today by many here, Peter said, is the key element and the key means whereby you and I are now saved. With those questions before us, we might ask ourselves this. Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? If not, why do you delay? Why do you wait? Are you waiting for a better day? waiting for a, perhaps a more convenient day. Agrippa waited for that, as well as others in the book of Acts, hoping and perhaps waiting for a more convenient season, when in fact, as far as we know, such did not come. There won't be a better day than the eighth day of April, the year 2012. If you today have not made availing character of the resurrection of our Savior, why not now? The gospel plan of salvation highlights the following facts and thoughts. While you and I are in sin, we recognize that they have separated us from our Heavenly Father. They, if you will, drive a large chasm between us because God is of pure eyes and to behold iniquity. Habakkuk 1.13 Isn't it thus the case that our Savior came in language like this? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 Can we not then say this? You need to believe, and so too do I, but we need to believe that Jesus, in fact, is the Christ, the Son of God, just as He claimed to be, and just as the evidence of His resurrection shows Him to have been. In that belief, that should prompt us in our confidence in these words to do something about it. That belief should prompt us to repent, to make some changes in life. I can't talk the way I once did. I can't go to places I once did. I can't act toward others the way I might once have. I'm now a person who wants to give up that life of sin and live a life of dedication to the Master, in part because the resurrection demands it. If we have been resurrected to life in baptism, then life, things have to change. 
We also, of course, need to repent of the sins in our life as we appreciate that's what the meaning of all these changes are. And then we verbally, audibly make that good confession spoken of in 1 Timothy 6 verse 12. That great confession identifies that you believe, that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And at that point, in a very humble and beautiful way, we're baptized. That old man's buried, set aside. Up comes one who in newness of life is now ready to live in harmony with the teachings of the Master and stand faithfully at His side day by day. This morning, that could be accomplished if there's one or more in the audience for whom that would be a necessary matter. If you have become a Christian by that means, having been added to the church, tasted all the blessings of fellowship with God and with His Son, but you no longer have been faithful to it, you've allowed various and sundry matters to distract you, all prompted by the devil, of course, but you've now left faithfulness at the side of the one who died for you. Remember, earlier in the lesson today, we looked at the scene of his death. He did all of that for me and you. He didn't have any sins for which he needed to be flogged and scourged. He didn't have any sins he needed to be nailed to the cross. He didn't have any sins for which a crown of thorns should be placed on his head. But I did, and you did, and he took our place. Don't you want to live for him, seeing what he did for you? Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet tis not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians 2.20 If you'd like to begin living for Him today, we'd be happy to assist you in your response to the gospel in a public way. If you need to be rededicated, as I mentioned earlier, let us pray with you. Let us pray on your behalf. Let us beseech God that He'd forgive you of those sins upon your repentance and confession of them. The gospel plan of salvation sets all these things before us, and it's the same for all of us. There are no special privileges. Jeff has chosen a song of encouragement today, and we're going to stand and sing that. And if we could be of some assistance and some help to you, we would invite you, we would encourage you, even as does Christ, that you would come while together we stand and while we sing.